Good evening, listeners. It's the 20th of January, 2019, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Heather Forsyth. And I'm Scott Classic. So at Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. Here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and the personal stories of one of these students each week. So if you're a graduate student here at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show where I was interested in looking for more guests, or if you just want to hear more about all the awesome things going on here, um, check out our blog. We've got a blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. So we also have a podcast available on iTunes if you search for Inspiration Dissemination and look for a little orange light bulb logo. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and their guest and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Lisa Hittlebrand, a first-year master's student in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about what you work with and give us a broad op- overview to get started? Sure. Um, so I study gray whales. Um those big gray things that you sometimes see off the coast here in Oregon. Um, before I get into my research, I guess I should give some background on gray, uh, on gray whales. So gray whales exist in two different populations on the uh, in the Pacific Ocean. We have one here that uh, kind of spans the American coastline, and there's one kind of on the western North Pacific coastline, so kind of along Russia and Korea and Japan. Um, but this American population, um, or this kind of yeah North American population, is the one that um, I study, and it's a population of about twenty thousand to twenty-two thousand individuals. So it's it's doing pretty well. Um, they were historically um, targets of whaling, so those population numbers actually declined quite a bit. But um, yeah, the population is doing really well, um, recovering, and it's really big. And um, as uh, gray whales are a baleen whale. Um, meaning that they have uh, plates in their mouths um, made up of baleen. Um, They're kind of made up of the same things that your hair or your nails are made up of. um, And they filter prey through that. So they'll take up large gulps of water and then filter out um, the water and retain the prey that they eat in their mouths and then swallow it. Um, That's kind of what uh, differentiates baleen whales from other types of cetaceans like dolphins that have teeth, for example. Um, But baleen whales are little, uh, gray whales are a little unique from other baleen whales in that they don't only filter water, but they'll also filter sediment um, that's found on the seafloor. So they'll actually take up mouthfuls of sediment and filter that out to get their prey. So the prey that they're filtering out there on the seafloor is like uh, clams or like shrimp or something? Uh, yeah. So um, it's generally zooplankton and amphipods. Um, zooplankton, it um, they're tiny little creatures but also bigger creatures. Um, Zooplankton is actually derived from the Greek um, zoon, which is animal, and planktos, which means drifters or wanderers. So it's any kind of animal that drifts and wanders through the ocean, I guess. Um, And it's a huge uh, range of organisms that are kind of enveloped within the zooplankton. So it's things that are microscopic that you can't see with your naked eye, up to things like jellyfish. So... um, it's a huge group of animals, but um, the gray whales will uh, mostly be feeding on zooplank- uh, on shrimp-like zooplankton and amphipods, which are found um, in the benthos, but also so in the sediment, but also in the water column. So they're pretty flexible in what they feed on. Um, 
And that's kind of reflected in um, the population that I study. So this bigger population, the Eastern North Pacific population that um, is found along the um, kind of American coastline. Um, like many baleen whales, they migrate between breeding and feeding grounds. Their breeding grounds are down in Baja California, Mexico. So you'll find gray whales there. Um, when it's uh, during the winter months, they like to uh, escape the cold, as many of us probably also do, <laughs> and travel down to um, warmer waters where they will mate, breed, and nurse their calves. And then in the summertime, they'll migrate up the coast, um, up to their main feeding grounds, which are up uh, in the Bering and Chukchi Sea, so like north of um, Alaska and Arctic waters. Um, and the majority of that big population, those 20 to 22,000, they will do this. They will go all the way up to the um, to those feeding grounds where they mainly feed on amphipods in, in the benthic sediment. So most of most of those individuals will do that benthic feeding where they're filtering out sand and sediment at the bottom of the seafloor. But a small subgroup of that huge population, about 200 to 300 individuals, they don't do that. They decide to go rogue and they don't go all the way up to the Arctic waters. They, in fact, they uh, they stay for the summers along the um, Northern Californian, Oregonian, Washington and Southern British Columbian coastlines. And this group is called the Pacific Coast Feeding Group. And it's individuals in that population that I study for my research. Cool. And so this group, I, I guess, like do the same whales keep coming back year after year and that's where they feed. They don't like decide to go all the way up to the Arctic and, you know, like eat a ton of food every right. summer. <laughs> um, so that's a lot of that is still pretty unknown. Um, this research on these uh, gray whales has been going on for about 30 to 40 years. But um, this whole term of Pacific Coast feeding group was kind of only coined in the early 2000s. So we're still kind of getting to know this population and who they are. Um, I think it's a pretty fluid thing. We do definitely have a lot of resightings of individuals that come back year after year that we've seen here um, on the Oregon coast. So there is definitely a, um, a level of site fidelity. Um, for example, in Port Orford, where I do my um, research, we have one individual, Buttons, <laughs> um, called Buttons because um, he, we know he's a he because we've also done horm um, hormone analysis on some of his fecal samples, but um, Buttons has a row of four circular dots on his fluke, so it looks a little like Buttons on a collared shirt or something. Okay. Um, but Buttons we've seen since the start of this project in 2015, so we, we're definitely seeing site fidelity among some of these individuals, but I think it definitely depends highly on kind of prey availability and what's around. Um, I think if a whale will stop by the Oregonian coast and see that there's not much good prey around, they'll probably continue further north. And I think that I think it's a bit more fluid than only these 200 individuals stay and the rest go up. So how do you tell the difference between all of the whales and how do you know that like buttons comes back every year? Um, so the cool thing about gray whales is that they're born with um, individual body pigmentation and markings um, that yeah, they're born with and then they keep throughout their lives. Um, they're kind of these white grayish um, spots and markings that are all over their body on the left and the right side and also on their tail flukes on the bottom and the um, top. And so um, if you take good enough photos of these individuals, you can track an individual through its entire lifetime. And uh, one thing, I guess, uh, at the risk of uh placing myself as a like a whale skeptic um, I'm just gonna ask you like why should we care about the whales um, it's I, w I would say it's pretty sad if you're a whale skeptic because I think they're so cool <laughs> yeah I'm just pretending <laughs> um, 
Well, one big thing is that um, obviously here in Oregon as well, you we have these gray whales here for at least six months of the year. Um, you see them. You can, you know, if you drive to Newport or anywhere along the coast, you just have to spend a couple minutes looking out to the ocean. Don't look too far because they're really close in and you can see whales there. And so it has become, um, you know, of high economic value for a lot of places on the coast um, because people want to see whales. Um, and so it is a big um tourist attraction to go out and whale watch and, you know, go and be among these whales and see how big they are when you're right next to them. Um, but also an important thing is that they are top trophic predators in the, in, in the marine ecosystem here off the coast. And so um, they will, they're at the very top of their food chain as us humans are too. And so kind of anything that negatively impacts the marine environment. So um, any kind of pollution, such as plastics, um, will kind of funnel all the way to the top and they'll get um, probably most negative effects of that um, if they are affected by it and so are we. So um, I guess kind of using them as um, indicator species um, since they are top trophic um, predators as us humans are kind of draws a good comparison between us and whales. The same thing could happen in us if, you know, we were to study ourselves and yeah. how it, um, any potential contaminants will biomagnify or bioaccumulate, I guess. Exactly. Build up um, because we obviously, as the top predators, will eat more of the lower trophic um, prey, such as zooplankton, as I've mentioned before. And so the more of something you eat that has accumulated a little bit of toxicity that can build up if, if you're eating so much of it. So that's kind of the case Um potentially for gray whales and for humans too. You mentioned uh, the plastics. Can you speak on what those plastics are, where they're coming from, how are the uh, plankton even getting those? Mm -hmm. um, so um, I'm sure everyone's used a plastic bag before or a plastic fork or something. I mean, it's just everywhere in our lives now and it's because it is very practical. Um, over the last few decades, the production of plastics has increased wildly. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of that plastic ends up in the oceans um, due to lots of different things, either because um, uh, due to landfills or runoff from um, land or wastewater or also just, you know, accidents or, you know, uh, shipping, um, shipping strikes and things like that. Um, things just get dumped in the ocean, which um, is really unfortunate. And so um, a lot of the plastics are what we call macroplastics, so plastic bags or fishing nets. But those can photodegrade, so due to UV light, they'll break down and um, will be broken down into these tiny particles, which are termed micro or nanoplastics. And um, so the harm with macroplastics, obviously, are things like entanglement. Um, so we get a lot of sea turtles, birds, and marine mammals like whales um, getting entangled in macroplastics. But the problem with microplastics is that they can also be ingested, so fed upon by both big and small organisms in the ocean. And that's in the recent, in about the last five to 10 years, there's been more and more findings that a lot of low trophic prey, such as zooplankton, are in fact able to consume these micro and nanoplastics and have been found in their digestive systems. And actually in the last five years, there's been three reports as well of uh, cetacean of marine mammals containing microplastics too. So it's not plastic bags, which are also common to be found in marine mammals, but there's been three studies reporting microplastics. So there is a a level of trophic transfer already happening from prey to predator, um, which is um, why it's something that needs to be monitored because we're just, there's just so much plastic around. Awesome. 
So, well, not awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Bummer. Um, So you've got these huge whales that you're interested in, and you're also looking at these tiny zooplankton that they feed on, and you've also got microplastics, so you've got a whole range of uh, size scale. How do you study that? What does your typical day look like? Can you walk us through that? Sure, yeah, you're right. I go from micro to macro, it's it's pretty cool. Um, So the field work that I do is down in Port Orford, which is a small town um, along the southern coast of Oregon, which is beautiful, by the way, in the summer. If no one's been, you should definitely go. It's some great coastline. Um, And my field week consists of six weeks um, out there. And um, my field team usually consists of about three to five people. Um, I have a team of three to four undergrad or high school, local high school students that help me with my um, field research. And I should say that this project that um, I've now taken over for my master's was started in 2015 by a former master's student here at OSU, Florence Sullivan. She started it with my current advisor, Dr. Lee Torres, um, as part of the GEM lab, which Dr. Torres runs. Um, And What we do on a day-to-day basis for those six weeks in the summer from July to August is we have two teams. We have a cliff team, which is in charge of tracking the whales, and we have a kayak team, which is in charge of um, everything prey-related. So to walk you through the cliff team, um, we use something called a theodolite, which is um, a surveyor, a very precise surveyor's tool, which uses um, height of a known location and distances and angles to pinpoint exact locations um, when you point the theodolite at something. So it spits out an exact um, GPS coordinate, a Latin along of whatever it is you're pointing the telescope at. And so we use that to track whales that come into our study area, which is very small. I'm working on a very fine spatial scale. It's about um, one by one kilometer. So it is, um, it's a very small area, um, but it allows us to, on a very fine scale, track these whales. Um, and within this field, um, field uh, study region, I have two different sites, which are just a kilometer apart. Um, so it's, it's all very easily seen from a cliff. Um, and so the people on the cliff will also take photos. Um, as we've already discussed, you can re-identify the gray whales. So that's kind of what the cliff team does. And at the same time, we have a kayak that goes out, which in the summer in Port Orford is pretty awesome to be out on the water for six weeks. And um, the kayak team will go out to 13 sampling stations where we um, collect samples of the zooplankton with a net and we drop a GoPro down so that we can assess the relative density of the prey that's in the water column. So that's um, kind of the two teams that we have that go out in the summer and collect that data of both um, predator and prey and then there's lots of lab analysis to do so it's mostly to do with the with the zooplankton um, in order to assess the microplastics and what I'm also going to look at for um, my thesis is the caloric content. So to know how much energy is in each species, we first need to sort all of those zooplankton by species. Um, They're tiny, so it's very hard and we have to use microscopes, but um, it is doable. And so it takes quite a few hours. But yeah, so once we sort those, I'm going to get into a lot of nitty gritty lab analysis to hopefully kind of map out what's happening on the coast here. And you're like out in the field for like most of the day, right? It's and then like you got to go back like later in the afternoon and then start like you know processing zooplankton samples. Yeah, right? it sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it's a, it's a long day, and I wouldn't be able to do it without my trusty team of interns. Uh, this summer, I had um, four really great undergrads from OSU help me out, um, and it's hard. I had them, you know, wake up at five forty-five. We were launching the kayak 
kayak at 6.30. Um, down in Port Orford, the winds get kind of squirrely about around noon, so trying to get the kayak out early to get all our sampling done as soon as possible is really important. Um, and But for the cliff team, it's not a short day either. Obviously, as long as you can be out there, as long as you can be looking for whales, the more chance you have of whales coming by and you tracking them. So yeah, it's a long day out in the field. And then Obviously, the more you get done in the field, in the lab, um, helps you later on in the process. So yeah, my team helped a lot with processing zooplankton, sorting um, you know, videos for data analysis. So yeah, the team usually goes to bed at around eight or nine. Everyone's pretty <laughs> tired. There are not many things that would get me up at 5.45 in the morning, <laughs> but kayaking may be one of them. And seeing gray whales. Yeah, yeah. That's, there's that too. <laughs> yeah. um, if you're just tuning in, we are interviewing uh, with Lisa Hildebrand. She's a first year master's student uh, working with Dr. Lee Torres in um, uh, wildlife science. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah. <laughs> and we we're just discussing some of her fieldwork approaches on how she studies gray whales. So you mentioned the uh, undergrads, which I think is a really cool field experience for the undergrads. Do you have? But you're also really passionate about outreach as well. Can you speak on that? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, working down in Port Orford, um, you know, it's a it's a really great local community, um, but there's not that many opportunities for kids from the high school to go out and participate in, you know, field science. And so it's been a name of this project to try and integrate as many kind of young career scientists as possible and to get young people really um, engaged and excited about science. So um, two years ago in 2017, Florence kind of started this initiative to try and get local high schoolers involved um, in the data collection. And she had two really great interns um, from the local high school, a senior and a junior, um, help her out. And it was a really fantastic experience. One of them, um, it kind of changed his whole perspective on what he wanted to do in life. And he's now studying biology at um, U of O. So, um, it's yeah, it's something that I'm really hoping to continue. Unfortunately, last year um, we didn't get any high school applicants, so I couldn't get any um, high schoolers involved in the research. But I had a really great team of undergrads and for them, it's um, exactly as important to try and get some research experience and things like that. So um, if you're listening down in Port Orford or, you know, someone in Port Orford, um, tell them about this project because I'd love to work with you. Um, but yeah, I'll definitely be starting recruitment a bit earlier this year. Um, to try and get some people on board. But um, yeah, I definitely had a lot of research experience, uh, you know, before starting my undergrad and things like that. And it really helped shape who I wanted um, to be in, you know, kind of like my career life. And so um, I want to enable that for other people too. That sounds great. And so um, if you don't mind me asking, how did you uh, decide you wanted to become a marine mammal ecologist? Um, I... I sometimes wish that it would have been like, oh, I've dreamt of being this since I was a kid, but um, it wasn't for me like that at all. Um, For me, it actually happened the year before I started um, my junior year at high school. Um, I went on a trip with my family to Svalbard, which is an island um, that's part of Norway, but is, you know, basically in the Arctic. and we did this trip um, around uh, around Svalbard, and I was surrounded by a lot of um, marine ecologists, um, marine mammal scientists, geologists, um, you know, climatologists. And I, it was for the first time that I kind of realized that people have a career in marine science and specifically in marine mammal science and that it was 
um, a job that I could work towards. If I worked hard towards it, it was something that I could do in the future. And so um, on the trip, I was able to see a polar bear mother with her cubs and we saw fin whales, um, which what, yeah, I guess it completely changed my life. And so coming back from that trip, I changed the subject I was going to take in high school. I made it more sciencey so that I could get accepted to a science program for my undergrad. And yeah, that's how I kind of got into marine mammal science. That trip sounds super magical. <laughs> it was. So what did you, what was your next step or your first step into research after that? Um, so part of me was like, I'm, this is, this is what I want to do. I know it. But the other part of me was a little hesitant and thinking maybe it's just, you know, kind of a pipe dream. So um, I wanted to make sure that you know, it wasn't just a fun idea, but that the actual reality of being a marine mammal scientist was something that I was genuinely interested in. So um, after high school, I actually I took two gap years to try and get some research experience in the marine mammal field. Um, and so I did um, two kind of two, two different six month internships with two very different programs. Um, one was with the Bottenos Dolphin Research Institute, um, which was based originally in Sardinia in Italy and is now based in uh, along the Galician coastline in Spain. Um, and that was kind of that was right out of high school. And it was my first taste for any sort of marine mammal field work. Um, and so it was studying local Bottenos Dolphin populations and tracking them from a boat and watching their behavior and how they fed. And after the first internship, I was hooked immediately, um, but I still had another internship lined up with a seal research facility in Germany. So it was looking at a completely different species in an entirely different setting um, and working more physiologically and trying to work out how these animals use their senses um, to find and obtain their prey. Um, but yeah, it was so it was two very different internships, but it's where I definitely realized that, yeah, I could do this for the rest of my life. I could watch these animals and write about them and read about them. So yeah, that's how I got hooked. That sounds amazing. Um, so like for the first one with the, the battle on those dolphins, did you uh, have to apply for something like that? Or I guess like you just kind of say, look, I'm, I'm interested in getting involved in uh, marine mammal research. Yeah. A lot of these programs, um, or a lot of these research facilities tend to be on, uh, like a yearly or a half yearly schedule um, and demand is high. There's a lot of people who want to get this kind of research experience. So um, I'd seen um, calls for this internship um, through a through a listserv called MarMam. So anyone who's interested in doing any sort of marine mammal um, work, sign up for this list, listserv, MarMam. Um, there's postings about jobs and internships and new papers and conferences and things like that. So it's a really great resource. And um, yeah, I applied. It was, you know, a very typical application process. You needed reference letters and a CV and a letter of motivation. So it was quite intense, like just coming out of high school, having to do all these things for an internship. But um, yeah, I, I got lucky and I got picked and yeah. So what brought you then to Oregon State after that? So you did internships, then you moved on. Yeah. So what was after that? <laughs> um, so after those two years, my mother had always been really worried that if I'd started a gap year, I would never stop and I would just lead a life of never getting a formal education. <laughs> um, but thankfully I did. I did my undergraduate degree in, at Newcastle University, which is in the northeast of England. Um, my degree was in marine zoology. Um, and so I did that for three years uh, and graduated this 
uh, well, June 2018. Um, but it was an internship that I did here during my undergrad. Um, I did up in Washington and Olympia with a group called Cascadia Research Collective. Um, um, it was an internship I actually did to kind of write my um, like my bachelor keystone project or my bachelor thesis. Um, and it was in my time in America um, that I realized that if I wanted to do anything big whale foraging ecology related that I had to come back to the States um, because we simply don't have any of those really big marine mammals um, along the British coast or um, in many parts of Europe. Uh, so I realized that this is kind of where I was probably going to get the best training by some of the people who had been who've been working on this research for decades now. So um, I started looking at who was doing any sort of marine mammal foraging research that was affiliated with the university. And um, Dr. Lee Torres was one of the great was one of the top hits that I found. And I read about her research. She does. Um, so her lab is the GEM lab, the Geospatial Ecology of Marine Megafauna Lab. So she predominantly works with um, marine mammals, but she also does a lot of seabird work. Um, and so she had a project on gray whales and blue whales and bottlenose dolphins and sea otters. And I'd read some of her papers and she just looked like the exactly the kind of person that I wanted to work with and learn from. And so I applied and the whole uh, grad school, the whole the way grad schools set up here in the U.S. is very different from Europe. In Europe, you apply for a program and once you get in, then you meet all of the professors and the advisors and then you kind of get paired up. Whereas here, it's the you you apply to your advisor and they have to accept you first before you get accepted to the program. So that just kind of shows how much at the forefront I think research is for a master's degree here. Um, and so I really love that aspect of it too. And yeah, so I got in touch with Lee and we got a great conversation going and she accepted me into her lab, I think May or June of last year. And then I started the field season in July. So it was a really quick turnover and I was kind of thrown into the deep end, but it's really been great so far. It's really cool. So then, um, of course, you just like started your master's degree, and that'll take a couple of years. But then, um, have you thought about like what you want to do afterwards, or like what what are your sort of longer term career goals? Um, it was always the scary question. Yeah, um, I, know. <laughs> uh, I think long term, I would love to um, continue doing research, but. Um, education and outreach is a really important thing to me. I kind of think, what's the point of, you know, all of us scientists doing our research if we then just keep it to ourselves and talk amongst each other um, when, you know, people need to know and people want to know what, what we're doing and what we're finding out. Um, and so I'd like to have, you know, some sort of affiliation with a university or a college kind of being able to do my research, but also having kind of that teaching and um, education aspect of it, too. But the dream would be to look at foraging ecology of large whales in a polar setting and kind of looking at how climate change influences them. But that might be a while away. So we'll see. Yeah, I could go back to Svalbard. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> So we have a couple of traditions on inspiration dissemination. Number one, uh, we're gonna have you give a piece of advice and this can be to either a younger version of yourself or someone in a similar position or maybe someone who wants to be you. Um, so you wanna tell us what that would be? Um, yeah, so I think my advice is kind of for any grad student or it could also apply to an undergrad who's just feeling super bogged down by, I don't know, their workload or by their stress levels and 
feeling like they're not able to meet, I don't know, demands of their advisor or their own personal demands and all the pressure. And my advice, I've had this a lot already, even though I've only, you know, started in fall 2018. But I think just take a breath and remember that this is what you love doing. This is what you wanted to do. You know, sometimes I just have to remind myself that I'm getting to work with Dr. Lee Torres, who's, you know, one of great people right now in in marine mammal ecology. So I think just, you know, take a step back. It's okay to feel the pressure. And um, yeah, remember that this is what you wanted to do and you're getting to do it. And it's a really great, I think, privilege and honor and just enjoy what you're doing. And yeah, take a step back and breathe. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And it gets better, I think, as you go on (laughs) in grad school. That's good to know. (laughs) Yeah. So our other tradition we have is uh, we're going to finish up this interview on a song that you've picked for us. So what's the song and um, why did you choose it? Um, The song is um, very aptly called Whale. Um, It's by a band called Yellow Ostrich. It's, um, there's no real reason I picked the song apart from the name and it's a cool song. Uh, The lyrics, if you listen to them, don't really have much meaning. It's kind of a, yeah, if you listen to them, you'll maybe be thinking I have no idea what this song's meant to be about but yeah it's a really cool beat and I think that the kind of the the music gets very like that seems to have a purpose whereas the lyrics don't have that much of a purpose I don't know yeah yeah cool all right well thank you Lisa for thanks so much for having me Yeah, yeah this is awesome all right whale by yellow ostrich